Hello everybody, I'm Matt Micucci and you are listening to Jazz is Travel. Everybody, Jazz is online editor Matt Micucci here, welcoming you to a new episode of Jazz is Travel. This is our weekly podcast series of globe-trotting conversations with or about groundbreaking artists, where we explore the significance of jazz and creative music in different parts of the world and the influence of music traditions of various cultures and backgrounds. Amir El Safar is a Chicago-born trumpeter, vocalist, composer, and santur player. He is of Iraqi-American descent, and much of his music aims to blend the Western styles of his musical formation, including jazz, blues, and classical music, with elements of Middle Eastern music traditions, some of which are endangered, including those of the Iraqi maqam tradition, which he actively performs. His new album, released earlier this year on the Belgian label Out There Music, marks his eighth album as a leader and his second full-length project with his fascinating Rivers of Sound Orchestra, a 17-piece all-star lineup consisting of musicians from a wide variety of musical backgrounds. So, without further ado, fire up an audiotini and listen to the audio waves as they fly through the air. Here is our conversation with Amir El Safar, on Jazz's Travel. Hello, Amir. Welcome to Jazz's Travel. Thank you. It's nice to be here. It's great to have you. And, uh, you know, the first uh, question I usually ask at the start of these podcasts is very simple. What part of the world are you speaking to us from right now? Well, oddly enough, I'm at my home, um, which currently temporarily is in Princeton, New Jersey. Normally I live in Brooklyn, but um, my partner and I are, are based here for this academic year. And then we'll be hopefully moving back to New York City um, next spring. So. Excellent. And I just got back from, from a three-week trip uh, to Italy, which is, I, I oh. know that's where you are right now. So. <laughs> I am here. Yeah, yeah. Where, where in Italy were you? Just... Uh, between uh, Torino and uh, Reggio Emilia, which is yeah. a super beautiful area I'd never been to before, and uh, Milan, and um, 
Yeah, and that general area. Ah, you saw a lot of the north. Yeah, yeah that's pretty much where I am. I'm not too exactly. far from Torino right now. I'm from I'm in Genova. Oh, and, okay. uh, I hope you had a good time oh, yeah, there. Yeah. Usually, people get a lot of good energy from from seeing all the art in Italy and all all the good stuff. <laughs> yeah, you're you're just surrounded by it. It's you can't really avoid it. And and I was working on a very interesting dance project with with a local company, so it was a very very cool um, environment to 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 explore that. And yeah. Great. No, yeah, it sounds interesting. And uh, another thing that's interesting, of course, is your new album, The Other Shore, uh, which uh, was released earlier this year. It's absolutely beautiful and a real uh, moving work. I was telling you before we kind of started recording that it's, you know, it's kind of the type of project that I love to highlight on this podcast series. But to get a proper insight, I feel it's kind of appropriate to retrace uh, your steps and find out more about Mm -hmm. your, let's say, musical or artistic formation. So, very simple question. Uh, firstly, at what point did music enter your life? Well, at a pretty young age, I think I was, you know, two or three. The very first sounds that I remember um, actually was first sound I remember was Louis Armstrong's trumpet um, on Porgy and Bess, uh, which that classic album with Ella Fitzgerald. And it really um, had a very profound impact on me as a as a young child. Um, And around that same age, I was also very obsessed with the Blues Brothers soundtrack, which we had on an LP. And, you know, Blues Brothers is a classic film that features many of the great soul, R&B and and, um, blues singers of the 20th century that all kind of came together. So you have Ray Charles and John Lee Hooker and Aretha Franklin. And then, of course, Dan Aykroyd and and, uh, John Belushi singing in their own sort of a ridiculous way. But... Um, but I was listening to that that LP incessantly as a as a three year old. So that's kind of my first um, experience listening to music. And then it was around the age of nine that I first had the impulse to play music. And that was when I heard um, the Beatles. I, I watched a film, their Hard Day's Night, which is um, from their early period. And, and I just was so inspired and immediately picked up my mother's ukulele and started trying to play their songs and eventually moved to the guitar and then later to the trumpet. And we can, you know, there's <laughs> many steps in between. But yeah. Sure. I mean, you know, I mean, it's like, uh, that's very interesting, especially when you said that, uh, that, you know, the first sound that you remember hearing was Louis Armstrong's trumpet. Do you think that had anything yeah. to do with the fact that later on you kind of picked it up in a in a real serious way? I think so. I, I mean, for sure. And it's it's interesting, though, because it was pretty sub sublimated. I mean, it wasn't, you know, I, I wasn't listening to jazz all the time as a, as a kid. I mean, it was just a few records that actually my father who's who was an Iraqi immigrant um really took to he, he Louis Armstrong was his kind of hero as his um you know the musically the person that he he always turned to so um <clears throat> and then later you know when I started getting into the trumpet as a teenager then I started digging into the hot 5 and hot 7 recordings from the the 20s and 30s and and then understanding that Louis Armstrong was more than just an entertainer with a with an interesting voice he was actually a musical genius and then um you know so so yeah it's not necessarily you know i didn't stay in that style of jazz um with most of my listening and most of what i was transcribing and and learning but um but i feel like it it was a foundation that kind of by happenstance i mean i just feel very fortunate that i was exposed to that at such a young age because i i do think that the sounds we hear um, in our early pre-verbal 
um, years does impact our um, our consciousness and and as musicians um, what we end up doing you know and the sounds we end up making uh, so this is interesting so your father you said it, it was a, a, an Iraqi immigrant um, mm-hmm. so was he listening to any music that would later kind of you know from uh, from that region Middle mm-hmm. Eastern music that would later influence your music because you know especially uh, anyone who's familiar with your with your with your works you know you can definitely tell there's an influence there sure yeah actually he didn't um, necessarily he didn't actively seek out or listen to that music there was a community of Iraqis uh, in the Chicago suburb where I grew up um, that did have gatherings and I, I heard the music in the background but it it wasn't coming from him and it wasn't certainly wasn't something I was really deeply aware of or paying attention to um, but I do find it interesting that my father coming from Baghdad uh, when he immigrated the place that he felt most kind of at home and the most um, connection to was was blues and was the African-American tradition and I, I don't think that was a coincidence I think there's a really <clears throat> musically and historically there's a thread um, connecting these musical styles that then you know as an adult I've been exploring for the last couple of decades really uh, what do you mean by that what what kind of uh, just the the emotional the, you know the communicative power of the blues and and what was being sung about yeah I mean if if I fast forward to when I was in my early 20s and I was in in Baghdad first studying maqam I mean I, I had a couple of lessons and I didn't quite you know I was starting to grasp what was going on with the microtones and and stuff and um, and was very intrigued, but but didn't have a reference necessarily. And then I heard this one recording of a great singer named Muhammad Al Qubanshi, and I can send you a link to it. Maybe there's a way to share it with your with your listeners. But um, there was a way that he had this kind of um, what we call yodeling or ululation, which is when the voice cracks and sort of almost sounds like a bursting of tears or emotion that that comes to the voice, but it doesn't. It doesn't take over the singer. It just mm-hmm. it's there, but the singer is still steadfast and strong and and maintaining their 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 um kind of their posture. And I really um that was the moment when I really connected with the music. When I when I heard that, I said, "Oh, this reminds me of Muddy Waters," and it reminds me of of Buddy Guy and some of the singers that I um, Robert Johnson that I listened to when I was younger. So right. um. There's that, and there's a, there's actually a much longer and more complex history of uh, Islam and the music of a- African American, the slave songs, and the, what became the spirituals, and actually the 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 blues itself, the intonations of the blues are pretty close, if not in some cases identical, to the tunings of some of the Arabic maqam scales, and it's not coincidental. There's a historical um, reason for that. And um, it's it's still it's kind of new research that's been happening in the fields of ethnomusicology, and um, it's it's there's a lot left to explore there. But of course, my approach has been more intuitive and musical rather than scholastic and and uh, you know academic. Yeah, but still, there's a work of real research behind it, and so I'm kind of wondering what made you decide to kind of find out more about this music. Was it kind of a process to find out more about yourself, your 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 heritage, you know, you know, your origins? Where? Yeah, it, it was a combination. I mean, I, I think 
everything we do as musicians or most of it is is somehow is an, a self-exploration um even even for people who are studying music that's very far from their personal experience you know there's there's some resonance that that makes sense and we don't always know why but there's an intuitively we can we can let our intuition guide us on those journeys and in my case yeah there was um, I was at an age where I was wanting to understand more about the, my Iraqi heritage, which I was pretty estranged from growing up in in the United States and not speaking Arabic. And um, and I always felt like there was a piece missing in my life. Um, but because most of my life has been expressed through music and most of my experiences are through music, um, that's the way it manifested. And, um, mm. and so going directly to the source of... Um, of Iraqi music. Now, I, I spent a couple of years studying Egyptian music and Syrian and Lebanese, and and they're all very beautiful. And I I was you know I found them very compelling. But it was really when I arrived in Baghdad because at, at that time we couldn't find many recordings outside of Iraq. So when I arrived and I was exposed directly to it, almost you know yeah, like I said earlier, going to the source, um, meeting people, practitioners, experts, and 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 experiencing this music in its na- native environment um in in pre-invasion iraq i should mention this was 2002 before before the us's second invasion i really found myself feeling at home and then um and then when i had to leave be- because of the war i just wanted to connect as much as possible and i think it was nurturing me um musically but also spiritually and and just in a very emotional and in a very personal way to, to be connected with that music. So you'd never been there before, but when you actually set foot in Baghdad, it was like a, it, you, you, you felt a connection with it, a very real connection. Aside from the music, it was like, a, you know, you, were, you felt close to it already, almost like you were not at home, but like a, it, it was a familiar place to you. Very much so. Um, I mean, I think just learning the language, connecting with relatives whom I had you know, I, I actually had traveled there once as a teenager um, in, in the 90s, but it was a very difficult period. It was right after the war and in the height of the sanctions when uh, life was super difficult for Iraq. I mean, it's, it's been difficult for most of the last um, several decades, but that was a particularly hard time. And I was also, you know, accompanying my father and just it was a different kind of trip. But when I went <clears throat> as an adult kind of on this journey, um, to, in pursuit of the music and also in understanding the the culture, I think I I really felt this embrace and I felt a sense of belonging, mm-hmm. um, and that it was kind of filling in the blanks of something that was missing in my life that I wasn't even aware of until then. So.
The track you are hearing just now is from Amir El Safar's new album with his 17-piece Rivers of Sound Orchestra, The Other Shore, released earlier this year on the Belgian label Out There Music. With this ensemble, El Safar has stated he is less interested in the surface intermingling of culture and more fascinated by the sonic possibilities in this unique combination of instruments from around the world. After much touring all over the globe, the orchestra's sound has evolved and their chemistry has deepened. This evolution is showcased on The Other Shore, which El Safar has defined as more ambitious than their first album. Here is the second part of our conversation with Amir El Safar. Do you ever feel like, you know, just uh, researching, you know, the music of uh, the region? Do you feel like aside from just making it your own and integrating it in your own artistic expression and your music, it's also a kind of a work of preservation because some of the these techniques may not be talked about as much or just maybe uh, even I, I've seen some of it defined as endangered. Absolutely. I mean, that was my mission. I mean, at the very beginning, I just, you know, I was going to learn very just I wanted to get a basic taste of what this music was about so that I could apply it to my work as a jazz composer and improviser which I was establishing myself already in, in New York in that in that world um, but very quickly as I got you know pulled into it I, I just wanted to learn more and more and to the point that I kind of left you know cut my ties with the jazz world and and even stopped playing the trumpet for a while to focus on singing and playing the santur which is a hammered dulcimer instrument um, native to Iraq that I, I also play now and um and yeah i mean th then at some point it, it became really about you know given iraq's situation um and and the difficulties of life there it, the music was starting to die out and there weren't many gatherings there weren't many um contexts for this music to be performed there was no state support for the music there was no kind of infrastructure to allow this music to be um disseminated and and just historically the iraq has been more isolated than say egypt or lebanon which you know geographically and and also just in terms of their uh, contacts with western european civilizations have have always had more of um a presence in in the imaginary and also in the in the sort of in the literature and the you know there's much more written about cairo um, since, you know, let's say since Napoleon arrived there in the, in the early, late 18th century, um, then there is about like Baghdad, which was more kind of shrouded in mystery, partly geographically, partly because it was constantly being occupied. And then there's a whole mythology about, about this region because of ancient Mesopotamia and also this period of, you know, like the, where, where Aladdin is set, for lack of a better, that's what people associate with, you know, the the, the medieval era that um, when Baghdad was a glorious city that was, you know, kind of the, the center of the world um, in terms of where people, education and, and um, arts and sciences. So there's a, it's a complicated history that's often, that's not, doesn't have a good, um, representation in the rest of the world and and the maqam al-iraqi which is the classical 
Nizuka Barak, is has very much been kind of shrouded in mystery. And so I, I really um, made it, it was my mission for several years to just bring this music um, back to Iraqis, first of all, who, many of whom had forgotten it, um, especially in the diaspora, but also to introduce Western listeners in, in the United States and in Europe and expose them to this beautiful and profound and, and deep musical expression. Yeah, and I think, you know, aside from the beauty of the music, it's it's very, you know, incredibly valuable work to keep the, these traditions alive. And uh, and like you said, you mentioned that you, you and this record, we hear it, uh, the Santur, which is uh, just has this really fascinating sound. But, uh, you know, just looking at it, it looks like it would be a, a very difficult instrument to learn. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was kind of de- deceived myself. You know, it's it's similar to the piano. You can walk up to it and in this case, strike a note um, or play in it. It sounds good immediately, as long as it's in tune. Um, but unlike the piano, first of all, you do have to tune it and maintain the tuning. And that's often, you know, the joke about some tour players, they spend half their life playing the instrument, half their life tuning it because it's, <laughs> it's ni- 96 strings and they don't hold yeah. in the same way that a piano does. Um, right. So so it's uh, unlike piano players who who you know call a tuner one note goes out of tune and they don't have any clue how to how to fix it and they have to call the technician to come in um some tour players do have to maintain and tune their instruments so um but then there's a whole other aspect of it that okay you can make a, a pretty note now you know there's there's patterns there's this right and left sti- uh mallet uh, sticks that you play with it you know how do you have this rhythmic continuity and I, I chose it for that reason because I was learning how to sing and I wanted to learn an instrument and the obvious choice would have been like the flute the nai which is a bamboo flute um, but I wanted to learn I wanted to approach the maqam from a, a, another angle and in this case it's a rhythmic as well as a you know it's a percussion instrument um, and as well as an, a melodic instrument and mm-hmm. and that gave me access to understanding it from from another perspective. Right. So the other shore, uh, your new album, which was released earlier this year, is uh, also a new full length with your uh, amazing Rivers of Sound Orchestra. You know, would you be able to tell us uh, a bit more about this orchestra? Because it's just, you know, just looking at the instrumentation and it just the various sounds that, that, uh, that, 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 that are part of it. Uh, it seems to fit very much fit in with your 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 musical vision uh, also of you know continuing this uh, also of blending the more western let's say styles like jazz and blues and so on with more middle eastern music traditions yeah absolutely i mean in terms of the musical styles that i've lived in and worked in that namely jazz i i didn't mention but i was also trained as a classical trumpeter um, and and have right, a de- right. that's what my de- degree was in, and I played in symphony orchestras in Chicago into my early twenties. And so, this orchestra represents the musical styles, but more importantly, the, the musicians, the individuals with whom I formed bonds and connections over the course of twenty five years or more. Um, so, you know, my sister is one of the members of the ensemble and she and I have been singing and making up songs together since we were young kids. Um, and she's a, a very accomplished violinist and, and, um, violist and plays the Joza, which is a traditional Iraqi, uh, fiddle. 
instrument and then her husband also plays percussion so there's you know these are sort of the very earliest connections but like the vibraphonist uh jason adashevitz was a, a drummer in the all-state combo that he, he and i were playing in and you know the this is like the state of illinois chose the best jazz musicians at, in, in high school you know at age 17 and and he and i were were playing together there and then we both went to the same uh conservatory and he was a drummer then and then i reconnected with him years later and he was playing the vibraphone so um and then the oboe player in the in oboes are very uncommon instrument in both jazz and arabic music but the the player in this orchestra uh, in the rivers of sound Mohammed saleh is from egypt and he and i met in the Weimar uh, West East Divan Orchestra that Daniel Barenboim um, created with Edward Said and Yo-Yo Ma in 1999. So there's like, and then J.D. Perrin, as one more example, is a played the bass saxophone in Cecil Taylor's uh, orchestras that I played in in the early 2000. And, you know, Cecil Taylor was pushing the boundaries of all musical expression throughout his entire life. And um, so I, I feel like not only... The, these people became good friends um, who I feel a, a personal and human connection with uh, in addition to their great musical abilities. Um, but also by working with them, I feel like we're uh, lighting up or, or sort of touching upon an era of my own musical, personal musical history that's also part of a world traditions that are significant in the world, Western classical music, Cecil Taylor's music, um, jazz, maqam, um, there's a bunch of Maqam musicians in the ensemble that I've worked with in New York for 20 years. So so it's a combination of friendship, camaraderie, and uh, musical and, and historical connections that are all kind of resonating in this ensemble. So another another thing, just listening to, to your album, is that I found it to be, and perhaps it's a cliche to even define your music as such, but uh, uh, spiritual. Uh, the first track is almost a call, call to, to, to prayer. It almost reminds you of a love, uh, reminded me of a love supreme, you know, that type mm. of, uh, music that, uh, and then looking just at, also at, at, at some of the titles, transformations reaching upward. Do you feel that there is that, 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 that spiritual element is also important for you? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I think you've, you've touched on it. And I, I agree sometimes saying spiritual can get into, it can awaken strange ideas, but I mean, all the music that I've really been drawn to my entire life has had some element. It's it's been some kind of spiritual connection, and of course, Love Supreme is is one of my all time favorites. Um, but also, you know, just the way the blues is sung, Maqam itself, it's trans. It sort of transverses the secular and spiritual domains in the sense that the poetry can either be um, secular or spiritual, you know, whether it's Islamic, Islam or Christianity or, or Judaism, it's, it's, this is the, these are the melodies that are used in, um, in the mosque, in the synagogue, in the church, in, in Iraq. So there's a bit of a, a ambiguity, a nebulous quality that they can kind of be of this world, but also spiritual. And, and that's kind of what, what I've, always been drawn to and and you know even even with beethoven i'm drawn to his late quartets that have a spiritual quality to them or or yeah so that whatever that the right word is for it um that kind of resonance um is always what i'm moved by and and seeking in the music and mm. and i think the other shore we, we've gone 
pretty deep into that um, into that space. Yeah. Well, we're we've actually uh, we're just uh, we've run out of time, but but okay. I just wanted to ask you one more question, and this is kind of out of curiosity, uh, because uh, I'm just looking at the title of this album, The Other Shore, and of course, then uh, your orchestra's name is uh, Rivers of Sound, and this might be a silly question, but is there something about the element of water that you find inspiring or important, perhaps even just on a poetic level or, or a level that's you know very real, very physical? Absolutely. And no, it's not a silly question at all. Um, I mean, I've, I've, when I started the Two Rivers Ensemble in 2006, and Two Rivers is a, is a sextet, um, the smaller sort of predecessor to Rivers of Sound, um, the obvious reference for Two Rivers is the uh, Euphrates and the, the Tigris in Iraq, which is the, where Mesopotamia and the early civilizations um, began. Uh, so, but I, I also had this other notion of, um, water and this, you know, water, uh, you know, Bruce Lee, <laughs> I just saw this, the documentary about Bruce Lee called Be Water, where it's about yeah. water as the str- strongest element, which, you know, is the softest, but also cuts through stone and also, um, can adapt itself to the shape of, of any container, you know, whether it's a cup or whether it's a, whether it's the ocean, it's, it's, it's malleable. Um, and also in terms of music, the way, I mean, the, the metaphor for, for water flowing and kind of not knowing boundaries. Um, there's also a beautiful poem, um, by Mahmoud Darwish, a, a Palestinian poet who's, who lived in exile, who's sitting on, in France, looking at the, the, the banks of the Seine River and realizing that the same water would connect him to his homeland, which, which he cannot go to so there's also a sense of transcending boundaries and and um yeah and 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 just as a in a very like you said poetic way just you know in my own music is often water is a is i feel like the main element that it's connected to in terms of the the way that the rhythms um are not they're not jagged and and hard edged like stone or like the earth and they're also not too floaty like the like the air but there's a sense of of a course of a current of of movement um but that's also not entirely rigid so um and that's just i think the way that i feel and and relate to music so um so absolutely this the water metaphor um uh holds uh, throughout all these projects well, Amir, it's, it has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, thanks a lot. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. enjoyed our conversation with visionary artist Amir El-Safar. His new album with his Rivers of Sound Orchestra, The Other Shore, is available now on Out There Records. And I hope you will join me again next week for more conversations with groundbreaking and innovative artists on a new episode of Jazz is Travel. 
I also encourage you to check out jazzis.com, a regularly updated website with lots of great content on jazz and creative music, including news, reviews, playlists, and much more. And of course, you get even more when you subscribe. Till the next time, this is Matt Makuchi signing off. See you soon. Music